We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. A reading from Mark chapter 15. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can take your seats. Let's take just a moment to pray together. God, we thank you for your mercies. Uh, that are new to us every morning. And we need a fresh encounter with those mercies this morning. Uh, We pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to feel all that you have for us uh, in this passage today. God, some of us, we are here and you feel so present in our life right now. And others of us, we're here and it feels like you are so far away. And others of us are here wondering if these things could actually ever be true. God, we're, we're all over the place on the spiritual spectrum, but in another sense, we're all in the same place. We're, we're more broken than we know. We're more in need of your mercies than we know. And so we pray that you would come and speak and that you would speak to us in such a way that our lives would be changed this morning, that we would walk out of this room different. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Good morning. My name is Brent, and I'm one of the pastors here. And if I haven't met you yet, hope to get to meet you after the service, especially at the Newcomer Lunch. Um, If you are new, we have been working our way through the Gospel of Mark um, ever since last October. And we are quickly coming to the end. Um, Next Sunday, we're going to get to the climax of the book which is the resurrection of Jesus. And that's what we're going to be looking at together on Easter Sunday. But, but in order to get to the resurrection, first you have to go through the cross. And that's what we're looking at today. Now, if you are at all familiar with the church calendar, we've already mentioned that today is Palm Sunday. You might think, this is kind of a, a strange text to be looking at on Palm Sunday. Uh, Palm Sunday is the day that Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem and the crowds welcomed him as a king. And typically it is a very triumphant day uh, in the church. The passage that we're looking at today is one you would typically hear uh, talked about at a Good Friday service. But I think this is such a great passage for us to look at on Palm Sunday. Uh, It is a great passage because Jesus, he is indeed a king. But he is a king unlike any king that the world has ever seen or ever known. He came to defeat his enemies, 
but they were enemies that no one expected. And he came to conquer, but he came to do it in a way that no one anticipated. And we see all of that actually at the cross. At the cross is where we see who and what Jesus came to conquer and how he came to do it. And we see it in this little textual note that Mark gives us in verse 33. If you look at the text, he says, at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Mark says that when Jesus was on the cross from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m., there was this darkness that came over the whole land. And what's really interesting about this is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all mention this darkness. Now, what is this darkness? Uh, Some have said, well, maybe it was a solar eclipse. Uh, The problem with that is that a solar eclipse only lasts for a couple minutes, and Mark tells us this lasted for three hours. And others would say, oh, well, this is, you know, some sort of like desert windstorm that you would find in the Middle East that kind of obscured the sun. But this is Passover, which means it's the wet season. That didn't happen during this season. And so here's the point. The point is that this is, this is not a natural darkness that is caused by nature. It is a supernatural darkness that is caused by God. And it is meant to teach us something about what is happening on the cross. Let me say it this way. If you want to understand the cross, you must understand this darkness. This darkness points us to three things. It points us to, here's what we're going to look at today, a darkness that we need to lament, a darkness that we need to own, and a darkness that we need to overcome it all. That's what I want to talk about today. A darkness we need to lament, a darkness we need to own, and a darkness we need to overcome it all. And some of you are like, man, a sermon on darkness. Happy, happy, happy. Okay. Let me tell you, the Bible is realistic about life. That's good news for us this morning. Some of us come into this room and our lives are filled with darkness. And while some of us are clapping and singing these songs, others of us are weeping inside. And if that's not where you are this morning, you will be at some point. And you see, God's word meets you there. The story of the cross is the story of darkness, and it's actually a story that we need. So let's talk about this darkness that we need to lament. All right, we we read just a very short uh, passage on the cross today, verses 33 through 39 in, in Mark chapter 15. But let me give you a little bit of context here, because if you go all the way back to Mark chapter 14. That is where Mark begins talking about Jesus' arrest and his trial and his crucifixion. All the way back in Mark chapter 14. Now, we tend to focus on Jesus' crucifixion. What struck me this week is that Mark gives even more attention to Jesus' arrest and trial. If you open your Bible, here's what you would see this morning. You turn all the way back to Mark chapter 14. Mark spends 44 verses recounting Jesus' trial. You know how many verses he uses to talk about the cross? 23. Almost twice as many verses in Mark's gospel about the trial as about the cross. Now, why does Mark do this? Well, listen, Mark begin, he, here's what he tells us about the trial. He tells us the whole thing came about because of a broken, corrupt judicial system. An unjust judicial system. 
He tells us how Barabbas, who was a guilty man who had been convicted of murder, was declared to be an innocent man. And how Jesus, who was an innocent man, was declared to be guilty. He tells us how those who should have been advocating for justice and truth, the religious leaders and the Roman rulers, he tells us how they became perpetrators of abuse and oppression. James Edwards who's a New Testament scholar, says this. He says, the suffering and death of Jesus will not come as we would expect at the hands of godless and wicked people, but rather at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. Jesus is not lynched by an angry mob or beaten to death in a criminal act. He is arrested with official warrants and tried and executed by the world's envy of jurisprudence, the Jewish Sanhedrin, and the principles of Roman law. Why does Mark do this? Why does he spend more time writing about the trial than the actual cross? And here's the answer. It's because in the trial and at the cross, there is a darkness about the world that is revealed. A world where systems are broken. A world where structures are broken. A world where institutions are broken. And for that matter, a world where everything has broken. There's a darkness. Have you ever noticed... If you've ever read the Bible from beginning to end, you might have noticed the Bible starts with darkness and it ends with light. In Genesis chapter 1, it says that before creation, there was darkness over the whole earth. That's in the very first chapter of the Bible. But then in the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, it says that a day is coming where there will be no more darkness, only light. Now, what is this symbolizing, this theme of darkness and light. This is so important to understand the cross. What is this symbolizing in the Bible? Throughout the Bible, darkness symbolizes evil and suffering. It is the Bible's way of saying that the world is not the way it is supposed to be. That everything in some way, shape, or form is broken. Our bodies are broken. And our psyches are broken. And our relationships are broken, and our families are broken, and our neighborhoods and our cities are broken. You see, but Revelation 22 says that in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no, this is what it says, there will be no more night. Does that mean that there's going to be no more moon or stars in eternity? No, it means there will be no more evil. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more tears. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more death. There will only be light, which means that things, everything will be the way that it was meant to be. Everything will be the way that your heart and my heart longs for it to be. And you see, darkness, friends, is not the way things were made to be. And it is not the way that things always will be but it is the way things presently are. And the question for us this morning is, how are we supposed to live now in light of this? And you know what the answer of this text is? Lament. Lament. Mark Vrogrop, who's a Christian author, he says this. He says, lament is the honest cry of a hurting heart wrestling with the paradox of pain and God's goodness. Do you know what that's like? If you're a human being, you know what that is like. 
Lament is when we stare at the darkness and we ask God why. And you see, this is what we all do. When suffering comes crashing into our lives, when circumstances comes crashing into our lives, we ask God why. Have you ever wondered if it's okay to ask God why? I've heard, I've heard Christians actually say, you cannot ask God why. You should never ask God why. Do you see what Jesus asked in verse 34 of this passage? He asked why. My God, my God, why? If you opened your Bible you would see that these are Jesus' last words in Mark's gospel before he dies. I mean, wouldn't you think Jesus might end with like an affirmation, something triumphant? I will overcome. Jesus dies asking the same question in his suffering that we ask in ours. And if you have ever wondered if it is okay to ask God why, Look at Jesus. Not only is it okay, but God invites it. See, most of us think that it is a sign of spiritual maturity to ask God why. We're supposed to suppress our anger and our sadness. That is not what Jesus does. I've been thinking a lot about this this week. I'm sure that many of you, probably all of us at this point, heard about the shooting in Nashville. Let me tell you, this one hit close to home for me. The pastor who leads that church is a friend of mine. He buried his nine-year-old daughter yesterday. Four Sundays ago, he preached a sermon on John chapter 11, which is about the resurrection of Lazarus. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. But before he raises Lazarus from the dead, we get the shortest verse in the entire Bible. Do you know what it is? Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Jesus looked at death. He looked at the darkness and the brokenness of the world. And he wept. And in that sermon, this is what my friend Chad said. He said, how do we face death in our world, not only in our own lives, but for those we love especially untimely deaths, without the pain and confusion of death leading us to despair. Knowing exactly what Jesus was about to do, that is raise Lazarus, Jesus sits down and weeps. You see, a strong confidence in the end of the story does not undo or justify the absence of grief in the middle. Listen to these words. He says, a mature faith adds its tears to the sadness in our world. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, all the while not losing confidence in how that sadness will eventually be overcome in him. Lament gives us the freedom to both weep and to ask God why in the face of darkness. And you see this all over the Psalms. All over the Psalms, the psalmists are asking God why. I'll give you two examples. Psalm 10, why, O Lord, 
do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 44, awake, O Lord, why do you sleep? Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? Do you know how to pray like this? Do you know how to talk to God like this? If you've never prayed like this, I want to encourage you to start because it is absolutely vital for your relationship with God. If you cannot be honest with God, you will stop dealing with him, I promise you. You will stop going to him, you will stop crying out to him, you will stop talking to him. Whether it is out of anger or utter despair, It is vital for your relationship with God. It is vital for our relationship with each other. See, if we think that it's a sign of spiritual immaturity to be honest with God, you know what happens when someone comes and confides in you with their questions and their struggles? You treat them like they're not trusting God enough. You're not a safe person to confide in and to struggle in front of. It is vital for our relationship with one another, and it is vital for our witness in the world. Listen, lament is one of the ways that we protest the darkness. Because under every lament lies the assumption and the belief that the world is broken. Lament is one of the ways that Christians say things are not the way they are supposed to be, things are not okay. And that is the first darkness we see in this text. It's the darkness of the world, and it is a darkness that we need to lament, but there's a second darkness. And it is a darkness that we need to own. Now, many people come to Christianity this way. They say, I like the teachings of Jesus. I like the morals of Jesus. I like the principles of Jesus. All this stuff about love and mercy and forgiveness but I don't like the cross of Jesus, the blood, the suffering, the atonement. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're here, and what appeals to you about Christianity are the teachings of Jesus, but what you don't like is the cross of Jesus. You can do without the cross. There are two big problems with that. Here's the first. First, if you take out the cross, you miss who Jesus is. We have four books in the New Testament. We call them Gospels that record the life of Jesus from beginning to end, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They tell us about his birth, they tell us about his teachings, they tell us about his miracles, they tell us about his ministry. But get this, on average, 40% of these gospels focus on the last week of Jesus' life. Meaning they focus on the cross, the Holy Week, which is what we're about to celebrate this week. Now that that is crazy if you think about it. Jesus lived approximately 33 years. He had three years of public ministry. He he did countless things. He said countless things. And yet almost half of the content of the Gospels is about the cross. You know why? Because the cross was central to who Jesus was and why he came. If you take out the cross, you miss who Jesus is. Here's the other big problem. If you take out the cross, you miss who you are. The reason the cross is so offensive to us is because it says you don't just need 
the teachings of Jesus. And you don't just need the morals of Jesus. And you don't just need the principles of Jesus. But you and I need a savior. And that is the second darkness that we see at the cross. There's not just a darkness in the world. But there is a darkness in us. In John chapter 3 verse 19. John writes, light has come into the world. But people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Light, John says, light refers to Jesus. Darkness refers to us. This is the Bible's way of saying we are actually part of what is wrong with the world. It's not just that the world isn't the way it's supposed to be. It's that you and I are not the way that we are supposed to be. It's not just that there's a darkness without, but there's also a darkness within. And to be a Christian, you must own this darkness. But the problem is that the human heart is inherently resistant to doing so. Let me give you an example. Uh, Elizabeth Holmes has been back in the news recently. Uh, Some of you may remember this was years ago. Uh, where she was the youngest billionaire in history. Her her medical startup, Theranos, had created this um, device to to take people's blood and to examine it and to do blood testing. It was like they could provide this breakthrough medical care for people. Here was the whole problem. The whole problem is that it was a sham. It didn't work. And she knew it, and it brought massive devastation to people's lives. It got distributed and people were diagnosed with things that they did not actually have. They were misdiagnosed and then diagnoses were missed and people actually died as a result. And she's actually finally, she's been back in the news because she's finally about to spend 11 years in jail because of it. Now, here is what struck me about her story. Is that her story is one of it's one of greed, it's one of deception, it's one of manipulation. And basically, if any any media reports you have watched, or I mean, I've listened to podcasts on this and watched stuff on Netflix, every single one is basically all about it villainizes her. It talks about how she is uniquely evil. Except for one person, this guy named Dan Arilly, who's a he's a he's a behavioral uh, scientist who teaches at Duke University. And I read an an interview with him, and he's done a lot of research on the the psychology of deception. And this is what he says. He says, if you look at Elizabeth Holmes at the end, you could think, how could she do this? But that would miss the point. If you look at her from the beginning, it becomes a cautionary tale about all of us. If we end up with this story and say, it's just one bad apple in one industry, that is a bad lesson. And then he says this. He says, no, this is about the human condition. He is saying the same thing that the Bible is saying. The human condition is that we are all capable of doing, given the right circumstances and in the right place at the right time, we are all capable of doing exactly what she did because there is a darkness in all of us. This is what is so missing in our cultural moment. Everybody is trying to cancel somebody else. Everybody is pointing the finger at someone else. Very few people are pointing the finger at themselves. And the Bible points the finger at all of us. 
As one novelist, he puts it this way. He says, if only it were so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessarily only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. What are we to do with this? There is a darkness in us. There is a darkness in the world. Is there anything that can give us hope and enable us to overcome the darkness? Yes. And that is the last darkness we see in this passage. Uh, In the Bible, darkness is also a symbol for God's judgment. You remember when Israel was enslaved in Egypt? And God kept telling Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh was like, no. And God kept sending these plagues. Plague after plague after plague. You know what the next to last plague was? It was a plague of darkness. Listen to this, Amos chapter 8. This is actually referring to the day of judgment. Amos, the Old Testament prophet, says this. He says, in that day, well, God says, in that day I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious festivals into mourning and all your singing into weeping. Isaiah chapter 13, referring to that same day, says this. See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with fierce with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and I will punish the world for its evil. Darkness is always a sign of God's judgment. And so that means that when darkness descends over the land, when Jesus is on the cross, that means that God is acting in judgment. He is acting in judgment over all of the darkness in the world and over all of the darkness in us. And maybe you're thinking, well, that sounds kind of scary. That's a little unsettling. You want to get up and leave right now, but we'd all see you walk out and say you can't. If that's a little unsettling to you, I want you to notice something. Who is being judged in this passage? Who is darkness descending upon in this passage? It is descending upon Jesus. And we understand more of what that, so what does that mean? Well, we understand more of what it means when we look at Jesus' cry. His cry. We need to understand this cry. Mark tells us at the end of this passage that this cry of Jesus, when Jesus cries out to God, this cry changes the life of this Roman centurion. It changed his life. And if you hear it, and if you understand it, it'll change your life too. Jesus cries out, my God, my God. Now, crucifixion was the most excruciating form of death. There was no worse way to die. Uh, Do you remember the movie, The Passion of the Christ? It came out years ago. Mel Gibson made this movie. And um, it depicted the crucifixion in graphic detail. I mean, it was so gory. But you see, Mark doesn't do that. It's really interesting. If you go read all of Mark's account of the cross, Mark does not do that. In fact, none of the gospel writers really go into detail 
It's actually striking how little attention they give to Jesus' physical suffering. Jesus does not cry out, my hands, my hands, when they pierce his hands with the nails. And he doesn't cry out, my head, my head, when they put the crown of thorns on him. And he doesn't cry out, my back, my back, when they flog him. He cries out, my God, my God. And here is why. It's because the anguish of the cross was much more than just physical pain. Something deeper is going on here. And we actually see this in the rest of the cry. Jesus says, why have you forsaken me? God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you rejected me? Why have you turned your face away from me? Jesus is not just losing his life. He is losing the Father. He is being abandoned and rejected by the Father. I mean, for all of eternity, for all of eternity, he had known the Father's presence up until this very moment. This is the moment. He's losing the relationship. In fact, this is the only place in all of the Gospels that when Jesus prays, he doesn't call God Father. Every other time that Jesus prays, he calls God Father. But here, no. He says, my God. Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, I do not think that the records of time or even of eternity contain a sentence more full of anguish. Why would Jesus do this? Why would he willingly go? Jesus says, Jesus says in John's gospel, he says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Why would Jesus do this? And the answer of the Christian gospel is that he would do it for you and me. For my darkness, for your darkness, for all of the ways that we have failed to love God and to love others. You see, here's what it means to be a Christian. It means that when you hear Jesus asking God, why have you forsaken me? It means to hear God, the Father, answer that question with your name. Father, why have you forsaken me? For Amanda. For John. For Paul. It's to hear your name. The cross says that Jesus, some of you are like, I just don't like the cross. I don't know what to do with it. Oh, friends, if you leave out the cross, you are missing the wonder of God's love for you. It says that he loved you so much he was willing to be forsaken for you so that you would never be forsaken by him. It says that Jesus loved you so much that he took the judgment we deserved so that we could have the acceptance and the approval of God that he deserved. It says that he lost the infinite love of the Father because of his infinite love for us. And it is only as you see this love and the darkness that Jesus was willing to go through for you that you will not be overcome by the darkness. You will be able to lament the darkness in the world. You'll lament it. Christians ought to be the most weeping people. You will lament it because you know that this is not the way the world 
was made to be, and it is not the way the world will always be. And not only will you lament it, but you will begin to work against it. When you see that Jesus came to dispel the darkness, it will push you out into your neighborhood and into your city to do the same. And you won't just lament it and work against it, but you will be able to own it. You will finally be free to admit what a mess you are. You know, that is exactly what we do every week when we come through those doors. What we're saying is, is I am a needy person. And it is exactly what we're doing every week when we come to this table. This table is not for people who think that they are good and have it all together. This table is for people who know that there is a darkness in them. And you see, you know what God, you know why God invites us to this table? He invites us to this table so that he can point us to the cross. That's actually what this table is about. When Jesus gave this this meal to his disciples, he said, this is actually a dramatization of the cross, of my body broken and of my blood poured out. And he says, this is how I want you to remember me. Isn't that interesting? Jesus doesn't say, remember me, remember my birth, or remember this miracle. The last thing that he gives to his disciples the night before his death is this meal that points to the cross. He wants us to remember the cross because the cross is where we see the greatest display of God's love and grace. It is where we see the links to which God was willing to go to have you and me. It is where God assures us that no matter how great the darkness is in us and in our world, his love is greater. That is the invitation of this table. That is the invitation of this table, and that is why God invites us week after week after week. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And after he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it, saying, this cup represents the new covenant which is shed in my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me. The Bible tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the cross, for the wonder of a God who would come into this world and suffer and die and rise again for us. God, we, we have so many questions about the darkness around us, about our own personal suffering as we come to this table. Many of us come this morning asking this question, why? And while this table does not give us an answer of why, it does tell us why not. It tells us that the reason for our suffering cannot be because you do not love us, because you are not for us, because you are not with us, because it points us to the cross that says you have done everything to have us, and all because you love us. 
Would you help us to believe and to receive this love this morning as we eat and drink together? In Christ's name, amen.